So uh, Colossians chapter 4, this is written by Paul, beginning in verse 2. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You may be seated. When I'm preparing to preach a scripture text, I begin by reading it slowly. I want to understand exactly what the writer, what the writer was trying to say. That's the goal. What, Paul, what did Paul mean? Okay, what did Peter mean? What did Isaiah or Moses mean? Because the goal of any sermon is to preach the text. Not preach my own ideas and tie a scripture bow around and on top of it and say, thus saith the Lord. In Paul's text in front of us, it, it, it doesn't stand alone. It never stands alone. Okay? It's always a part of something larger. Okay? These few sentences are part of a whole letter, aren't they? Sent to the church in Colossae. So what had Paul been saying up until this point is important to what he says here. And even secondarily, I've got to respect what Paul has written elsewhere to the churches. For he consistently uses language and concept important to his thought. What's more... Paul's thought is built upon previous writers whom God inspired. And Paul has learned from these people of the past. And so they play a part in interpreting Paul's text at, at maybe a third level. right? But really, reeling it back into today's local text, you will see that sometimes a phrase the writer uses has already been used in the letter. Two or three times even, which is what Paul has done with the phrase here that it interests me. It's the phrase, the mystery of Christ. Mystery of Christ. So that's significant if he's used something over and over again. And we've got to ask ourselves, what does Paul mean by it? The mystery of Christ. It's kind of like Ben in this letter, the centerpiece that he's put on the table. Another thing I do that affects my sermons is I take notice of things that kind of spark my interest. And my interest is aroused initially by two things. The first first way it's aroused is when I don't understand what's being said. It makes me kind of scratch my head. I got to figure that out. If I'm going to preach on a text, I've got to figure out what's being said in that phrase or that sentence. I don't want to preach something inaccurately. 
So that's one thing that catches my attention. The, the second is when I find excitement by what is being said. I, I think I'm reading something that is making my day. Oh, wow, this is delightful. It's inspiring to me. However, that interest can be dangerous. I'll tell you why. Because when something seems exciting to me, something seems like it's something I want to share with you, it could be because of the state of mind I'm in, right? Something jumps off the page. Maybe Paul didn't mean for it to jump off the page. I was just looking for something, right? I was looking for something I wanted to say, and Paul seemed like he was, he was touching upon it. I'm going to use that. That's a mistake. Because then when I'm down, if I'm feeling down, I might, I might want to see black in the text and pick at those pieces and share them. If I'm joyful, I might only look at the light things and bring those from the pulpit. You can see how that may lead a preacher to reading into the text something that Paul really didn't want to emphasize. Purcell just wanted to. Well, in today's sentences, I'll confess I was a little excited but also confused by the first sentence. When you read it, it seems pretty plain, maybe. It says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. I was so excited about the phrase, being watchful in it, that I shared it with Tracy at a dinner table this week. I think there's something really cool here. Being watchful in it, it sounded wonderful to me. Steadfast in prayer, being watchful in it. I thought to myself, Paul might mean that we should pray and then watch God work, watch things change. That sounds good. That's exciting. I thought if it was the intention of the writer, I was really going to rev things up here. I don't think it was Paul's intention. I don't think that's what he's saying. To be watchful and it means pray and watch how God changes things. We'll get to that in a bit. But you've got to remember, and this you've got to hear, especially if you're one given to listening to Christian podcasts, reading books on your own, which is great if you, if you are given to that. This you got to remember, the writer's intention, the writer's intention is imperative, not for Sell's excitement. For the writer of the text must mean it for it to be God's word. If he didn't mean it, it's not what God means. Now that's loaded with challenges that the best of Bible students We'll get themselves into that. That's loaded with challenges, but that is exactly what you need to hear. The writer of the text must mean it for it to be God's word. We do not get to determine, we do not get to determine the meaning 
of the thing. Neither, okay, does God undermine those through whom he gives us his word. He, he, he works through the author. He, he works through the writer. He inspires them and they write. They know what he wants them to say. He does not have, he does not have hidden God messages that they're unaware of. Some people believe that's how God inspires the Bible. That's not the case. In the text, the writers are not unaware. God is instead working in concert with them. With Scripture, you could say that God is the orchestra conductor. His writers are the musicians. Each may not play all the instruments. They don't know everything but they play their own instrument impeccably. So if you get something out of the book of Colossians that Paul did not intend, you didn't get it from Paul and you didn't get it from God. Be very careful about that. So then I was sparked by the phrase being watchful in it. However, I didn't want to get ahead of myself because... I wasn't quite sure Paul was saying what I wanted him to be saying. So I started to read what other Bible commentators had to say, and frankly, they corrected me. They corrected me. They explained it in my excitement. At first, my excitement was dulled. It's like, ah, yeah, they're right, I'm wrong, and bummer. But my initial hope, it was no good at all if it was not scriptural. For my aim was off. I was aiming, I was aiming at something, but my aim was off. And then I shouldn't shoot. But to come to learn to know the word more clearly, it's the great, it's the great reward because it sets us straight. We are repaired by truth. We are repaired by truth, not by wishes, not by gimmicks, by truth. Finally, another thing I spotted. This is still preliminary, okay? We're, we're going to get into those texts. Another thing I spotted was the immediate connection between what God wanted for himself and, and what he told the Christians in Colossae to do and how to do it. He provides really blatant application in verses 5 and 6. It's pretty, pretty clear what we should be doing. You don't need to think too hard about what we should be doing once we get there. Now, okay, that you know some of the ways my mind approaches a passage, let's look more closely at the complete text to see what God, through Paul, wants us to know and do. Verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time that your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. 
Okay, we're at watchful in prayer. First, first point. Does it mean? It does not mean to pray and watch for God to work. It does not mean that. Not here, at least. What it means is to be mentally attentive while you pray. Do not become weary. Do not become distracted. Do not have your mind on other things. Be watchful. The Cambridge Bible for Schools and Colleges comments, prayer, prayer is no mere spiritual luxury or interlude. It is sacred business. That's a great line. It is sacred business with its difficulties and its labor. Be watchful in prayer is the sentiment shared by Jesus at the Mount of Olives, if you remember, when he tells the disciples, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, Matthew 26, 41. This was when they, what, disciples kept falling asleep. He'd go up, he was praying to the Father, he was in anguish because he was about to to face the cross. He comes back after he told them the praises, you can't even pray for an hour. They're sleeping. Three times he came to them and they were sleeping. They were not watchful. To be watchful in prayer is to be awake to it. The pulpit commentary says it is to be alive in the fullest sense, to have all the powers of perception and action and readiness. The activity of the soul in prayer is to be both energetic and incessant. So he, you and he, you and me, we should be steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. It means you should be firm in it. You should be alert in it. Wow. Do you go into prayer with that degree of preparedness, that degree of commitment, Tell you what, my more more often my prayers are quick, empty, pathetic requests taken from a list that are important to me. I think they're important to God, but taken from a list. However, as I'm praying, I'm kind of speaking these little daily incantations. They're almost like incantations. Magical snippets. If I throw enough out there, eventually he's gonna take and give me credit for them. He'll do something, hoping to produce this particular effect with God. I I don't pray meaningful, regularly, prayers to him. I'm too hurried, what? I'm too hurried to get to the more important things in my day. Absurd. John Gill is a commentator who goes back a century or two and He's often a commentator that will look at the Jews and their thinking on Scripture. After all, they had it before we did. And Gill writes that this is why the Jews say that every prayer which is not with intention, watchful, is no prayer. 
they observe that a man must turn his heart from all other thoughts and seem to himself as if he stood before the divine majesty. I think that's good. God knows our frame. He knows that we are weak at times. But this is the same God who told his disciples, be watchful. Based upon that standard, I have not done a lot of watchful praying as a Christian. The second point is this mystery of Christ thing. Paul says he wants to declare the mystery of Christ. He wants them to pray for him, in fact, so that he can declare it clearly, with clarity. And so you wonder, is the mystery something, why the word mystery? Is it something that you cannot understand? It could not be understood. It's a mystery. Is it a mystery that requires secret knowledge? I do not believe so, no. Rather, it can be understood, but the reason Paul calls it a mystery of Christ is because it was, it was hidden by God for a long, long time, for ages. It was a mystery in that sense. Not that we couldn't understand it, but that it had been hidden. He hid it, God hid it from men and angels. So what is this mystery of Christ? Why does God, why does Paul call it mystery rather than the mystery of the gospel, for instance, or the mystery of God? He calls it the mystery of Christ. I believe it's because the mystery kept hidden for so long was about all the wonders and the riches and the glory of the Son of God and what he was to bring and to be to his creation. The mystery of Christ includes all of Christ. All that is him, along with his treasures. Earlier in the letter, okay, taking a look at how Paul is using this language, in chapter 1, Paul introduces the mystery. Beginning in the middle of uh, verse 25, he writes this, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So from chapter 1, Paul mentions mystery twice, right? Within a paragraph. He confirms there it was hidden for ages and generations, but it is now revealed to the saints. He mentions how God chose to make known among the Gentiles the riches of the glory of the mystery. We are the Gentiles. 
And then Paul adds, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So this mystery, certainly it was newly revealed by Christ through Paul that the Gentiles were now to be brought into the family of God with the Jews. And those things that once kept us at a distance, kept the Gentiles at a distance from the Jews, were, were being removed. That's part of the mystery. This is, a, this is the great Gentile inclusion. However, the mystery of Christ involves riches and glory, and he himself among them, and in them, according to verse 27 of that first chapter, We Gentiles are beneficiaries of this great mystery along with the Jews when they believed. And Christ's abundant riches are now ours. In chapter 2, Paul writes this, again mentioning this mystery. Beginning in verse 1, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, And for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach, and listen, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures are hidden in him. So God's mystery is not merely that the Gentiles have now been made part of God's people, but it is even greater. God's mystery is Christ. Someone could point to a sentence, I'm sure of it. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, and it says pretty clearly, pretty plainly there, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. As if to say, that's all the mystery is, the Gentile inclusion. And we we celebrate that God's gospel has gone into the nations. We are from those nations, and so... We have been made Christians. The mystery of Christ surely includes that Christ has now brought us, you and me, into his kingdom. But it's better. It's that we have access to him and his riches. When before we had been separated from him. But the mystery is not defined. It's not encapsulated. It's not limited to that one sentence about the Gentiles. Indeed, two verses later in that Ephesians passage, the mystery expands. Paul continues his thought. He writes, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. What is the plan of the mystery 
hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And here's the thing. Christ is so wonderful. We're told about these abundant riches. But do you really imbibe in him? Do you really care? Do you just go about life thinking, yes, I'm a Christian, I know some facts, I know some things, I know what I'm supposed to do, but you really don't imbibe in Christ. You don't dig deeper. It's so easy. It's so easy not to attach yourself to him frequently. You see, all all of a sudden, the mystery of Christ, it's not merely his work with the Gentiles being brought in to the kingdom, but it includes these unsearchable riches, unsearchable riches. It includes the manifold wisdom of God. It's it's according to what? An, An eternal purpose. These are huge things. And it's God's intention that, it be, but that this a mystery of Christ be made known even to angels, according to what Paul wrote there in that second part of the Ephesians passage. So the, the Gentile inclusion is part of what Christ came to accomplish, but the mystery as a whole must be Christ himself. Think of it like this. Okay, someone who gets caught up on the idea of the mystery being defined by one verse of the, the gospel or God's kingdom being open to the Gentiles and that's it. That's, that's not it completely. But think of it like this. I was a sc- school uh, teacher in a grade school, Christian grade school. And if I saw some orange laying on the ground and I'd say to a student, hey, could you pick that up and, and throw it into the garbage can? He would understand what I was saying. He'd he'd throw it into the garbage can. Yes, Mr. Kappa. And everything I said there was meaningful and true, but you didn't know that it was just part of an orange that was laying there. I didn't need to tell you that, right? He didn't need to know it was only part of an orange. I said, hey, can you pick up the orange laying on the ground and throw it in the garbage bin? He knew what I was saying. In fact, if all that was there was the peeling of an orange that some kid discarded along the way after he ate out the middle and it lay there next to the garbage bin, I could still say, hey, can you pick up that orange and throw it in the garbage bin? And he'd know what I'm saying. But do you know what I'm saying? I'm saying that it doesn't matter if it's part of an orange or the whole orange. You can say the same thing about it. And so when you talk about the mystery of Christ, you can talk about it in in what it accomplished for the Gentiles, but it's not only what it accomplished to the Gentiles, that's just part of it. The mystery is more full than that, just as there was more to an orange than what was laying on the playground. In the same way, this mystery of the gospel is more than the gospel. It's, it's, it's more than the cross. It's, it's more than the Gentile inclusion alongside of the Jews into God's kingdom. And those things... They could all be referred to, but they're, they're still only part of the whole. 
The mystery is Christ. There is a uh, commentator, John Gill, who summarized this way. The gospel of which Christ is the author, preacher, sum, and substance, the whole of which is a mystery, the wisdom of God in a mystery, all the doctrines of it are mysteries, and particularly those in which are here more especially designed with regard to the person, offices, and grace of Christ as the mystery of his divine and eternal sonship, of his incarnation, of the union of the two natures, divine and human, in his person, of redemption by his blood, justification, justification by his righteousness and satisfaction by his sacrifice, things dear to the apostle and which his soul was full of and he wanted to speak out and therefore Paul desires to be made for him prayer that a door might be opened and a way made for his speaking of these things with clarity. There's a familiar doxology Paul wrote in Romans 16. This is how it goes. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writing has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. The mystery was hidden, but it was not only hidden from the Gentiles, it was hidden from the Jews, it was hidden from angels, it was hidden from all creation. And the riches of it are abundant. We must apply ourselves to them by getting to know the Lord Jesus Christ more deeply. I want to I pray something now, and, and this isn't the end of the sermon, I just want to pray this with you, all of you, whether you're here or not, I want you to reflect upon Jesus and his wonderfulness as I exalt him with some words here of prayer. It's not the end, as I said, but consider how rich he is. Please bow. Lord Jesus, you create all things and give life. You sustain life. You hear. You see. You are not distant, but with us. You came to be inside your people. You have never not existed. You are one, but not alone. You gave purpose. It comes from nowhere else. You have all power and all authority. You do as you determine needs to be done. Men and angels rile against you, but they are grains of sand compared to you. 
You forgive. You choose. You justify men and sanctify and glorify them. You break apart in order to bring together. You depose to establish. You destroy and then build. You add sickness, but you heal. You reconstruct things that need reforming. You find what is lost. You repair the broken. You love. You are faithful. You never forsake. We didn't expect such a Savior. You were hidden from us as a mystery, yet planned for us from eternity. You are God, come to suffer and save. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We praise you and love you. Amen. My third point is in verse 5, Paul tells them, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Just as Paul, okay, wishes to bring Christ to those who hold him captive, that he may be released, just as he wishes he may be released also and continue on in his missionary journeys to the nations, he also wants church members in Colossae to bring Christ to outsiders, to those who are without Jesus. We know, we know here Paul is teaching the mystery of Christ even while he's in prison because he wrote, you know, in another letter to the Philippians, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to, and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. The imperial guard is a lot like the secret service and the, the capital police combined guarding the president and the administration. And the, and the imperial guard of Rome, they had heard of Paul, they heard from Paul, they, they heard his gospel. He revealed to them what he could of the mystery of Christ. And that's because Paul was confident that this wasn't just about circumstance. God was in control. He wrote to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David is preached in my gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound, he said. The word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. 
So then the wisdom we are to have toward, toward outsiders, it most definitely has to do with the kingdom of Christ. Jesus' kingdom is for us, should be the primary kingdom in which we live. It's the one that holds authority over the kingdom, all kingdoms of men and angels. And so Paul gives the instruction to us how we should carry on with those who are outsiders. Outsiders are those people who have not covenanted with the Son of God and his bride, the church. They are people who cannot see the kingdom of God as Jesus taught in John 3. They have not been regenerated by the Holy Spirit through the gospel. Christ's kingdom, the motivation for it is also apparent because Paul refers to the shortness of time. Time is short. He wants us to make the best Use of time with outsiders. You may not be allowed many opportunities with a person. Every man, woman, or child are given only so many days and so many opportunities to get things right with God. And they're cut off. Paul also suggests that wisdom can present itself in our, in our conversations. He tells us, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. What does that mean? First of all, it means we should be intentional with outsiders. We should anticipate that they may need to be exposed to Jesus. It used to be when I was young, that nearly everyone went to church somewhere. As a kid, I did not know people who would have called themselves atheists. Everyone went to some church. About the biggest difference in my neighborhood and among my classmates was whether a person was Lutheran or Catholic. Now, I'm not speaking and saying that that faith, that Christianity was necessarily genuine. But that's just the way it was. Everybody went to church, whether you wanted to or not. And I lived in Jackson, small village just south of West Bend. Of course, we know that Scripture warns that just because someone says they're a Christian, it doesn't mean they've truly submitted themselves to God. Nonetheless, we're supposed to be wise, what, toward outsiders and gracious. And we are to season our conversations with some salt. Now, salt, don't take that the wrong way, is a good thing. It's an additive to food. You add it, it gives flavor and preserves the Roman soldiers actually took and used salt as money because of its value. It's not disagreeable in its purpose. Salt is not. It does not cause ruin or rot. Or... It has a savory effect. It was not, therefore, antithetical to graciousness, which is what we're supposed to be, gracious. It's not, it's not opposed to that. It walks hand in hand with it. Salt allowed things to carry on. 
to season your conversation with salt was meant to do good. It was meant to promote life. And we know, above all, it was meant to point people to Jesus Christ, for he is best of all. Here's the thing. We've had the beauty of Christ shared with us. And when we first imbibed in him, when we first tasted of him, we knew he had come home. But our faith was not finished. It had just begun. It's for us to desire to learn of his riches now more and more. Maybe your motives are not so pure and your hunger not so great. Maybe you don't think you're a starving person. But it surely exists, doesn't it, that you want more of him? But the outsiders, those still apart from him, they haven't even had their first taste of his riches. So you must season your conversation with salt, the salt of Christ. And I want to suggest how easy this can be. And this is uh, marching orders. When I get into conversations with customers or colleagues or suppliers or coworkers, whatever, about God and Christianity, it typically begins with us discussing normal issues of the day. Who doesn't do that? Normal issues of the day. And whenever you have such conversation, you know, those conversations always involve ethical or moral positions by the person that you're talking to, by you yourself. There's reasons for why we believe something to be good and not good. And I don't let it bother me too much what the person I'm talking with thinks about these things. You know, the position my companion takes, it doesn't bother me. It's his position, right? I like him, or I'm trying to get to know them better, like them more deeply. But what I try to do in these conversations is just kind of try to ask questions and inquire and go beneath where their position is, right? I want to know why it is that they believe as they do. That's fair. That's wanting to get to know the person. For instance, I just made this up, right? I maybe had a conversation like this. I don't know. For instance, if the person thinks, you know, drinking is wrong, you're having a conversation, something comes up, oh, I don't drink, or I don't think, he drinks too much, you know, whatever. I will inquire and say, really? Why do you believe that? That's a a simple, non-confrontational question. Why do you believe that? Did you have a negative? I'll even suggest, did you have negative experiences when you were young? Maybe their mom or dad got drunk every night and didn't care about them as kids or something. I don't know. Is it something you were taught growing up? Fair questions. I think they'd ask you the same thing if they're curious. And it's right at that moment, though, when when you start talking about things ethical and moral, it's right at that moment that you're having conversations um, that Jesus and his kingdom actually lay claim on, right? Because anything right or wrong, you must be talking about things beyond us. If it's right or wrong, it must come from somewhere. So we're already in Jesus' environment. 
Jesus teaches about drinking. He has a position on, on it himself. I hope it's your position. Jesus drank. He drank with sinners. He calls drunkenness sin, but not drinking. Sometimes it is suggested also that drinking can get in the way of productivity. Be wise. It was warned against for the priests when they were on duty and would go into the holy place and so on. But you can see if someone says they think something's right or wrong, automatically you're talking about things that Jesus has something to say. But my point is this. The conversation has stepped into the kingdom of God stuff. All right? And likely for it to be a conversation, you will get your turn to share your ethical and moral position too. It is then you must be gracious and season it with salt, for salt is good. Do not be ashamed of Christ, but share based upon your view, what? Of being a Christian who wants to please the Lord. And you understand that the Lord exists and is ever-present. So there you go. And, the, and this person, you're thinking, well, I, I, I'm against drinking too, you might say. Or I, I think drinking's okay because I don't have a problem with it. What's that? You didn't help this person. You didn't season anything with salt. That was, your, that was your moment to shine. That was the moment to say, expose them a little bit to Christianity, to Jesus, and the reason why you do things the way you do things or don't. And guess what? Christ is there. He's there in that moment. If you say something or you don't say something, he's there. He's ever-present. Now, this may open things up to questions from your friend, or it may offer you an opportunity to ask further questions yourself. The question is, do you care about the person? Are you interested even in them as a person? If you do, you will listen to where they are with the hope that eventually someday it ends up that they're with Jesus. they might be a Christian already. Amen? But even if they are, the journey still continues for all of us, doesn't it? So continue to have these conversations. I had it one time. I'll draw this quickly to a close. I had it one time where I was training a, a colleague in to become a salesperson. I shared this with some of you. Become a salesperson for our company when I worked for Best Lot. And uh, he was a Christian by confession. He went to a Lutheran church. He had a, a, woman, a woman pastor. And at some point along the way, I said, hey, Gene, I don't get it. I have, I have issue with, with, women, with a woman pastor because I think it's unbiblical. What do you do with? And I just shared a verse from Paul about you know, women should not be placed in a position of authority over men in the church, right? And so I just shared that verse. I said, what do you do with that? I mean, how do you reconcile? I'm, I'm willing to listen. I'm interested. And I don't even remember, you know, where that conversation went. But along the way, we kept just kind of talking about these things. And then I shared a tape with him at, at some point called Hell's Best Kept Secret by Ray Comfort. I said, hey, listen to this. This is amazing to me. I think you'll like it. 
gave it to him as a cassette. He was driving along on his own time. And he tells me after the fact, he says, that tape was amazing. He says, I was bawling. And, and it, it came to, to be that in that course of time, these conversations with the Holy Spirit's work in Gene made him a Christian. When prior to that, he said he was, but he wasn't. These are the kinds of things that we can do pretty sheepishly, but effectively. If they had no, oh, I'll often, this is the way I'll start oftentimes. Once we reach that morality, ethical, we start talking about rights and wrongs, I'll say this to them. Do you have any church background? I'm curious, because that's what stirs me, right? I said, did you grow up in a church at all? And I'll, and I'll see what they say from there. Oftentimes, or a lot more in the past, it would have been, yeah, I was brought up in the, as a Catholic, or I was brought up in a Methodist church or whatever. I don't go anymore hardly. Okay, we're all of a sudden in kingdom of God conversation again. Did your folks raise you that way? I'm interested. You should be. I'm curious how they, how they got to this point in history. Maybe they are Christian, maybe they're not. If they had no church experience, then I'm really curious, and I'm going to ask, so what did your parents teach you about right and wrong when you grew up? I mean, where did they get it from? Did they? And what was the reason they gave? Because listen, even though I grew up going to church, we really didn't live like Christians six and a half days a week. However, we were taught do's and don'ts, and they were typically based upon the concept of God that we had. I mean, what else do you base it upon? I, for the life of me, am very interested in a non-Christian home and how it deals with morality. How can it deal with morality? I don't know how someone holds to some form of right and wrong without a God of some sort. So ask questions, let people talk. It allows you to sympathize, sometimes empathize with them. If nothing else, you'll know someone better than when you began the conversation. You'll know them better for the next time you talk about Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I pray and I ask that you would uh, attend to us. We, we, we certainly are, are not arrived in any sense of the imagination except for the important uh, initial arrival points where you have saved us and justified us and you're in the process of cleaning us up. I pray that you continue that cleaning by your word, by the sacrament that we'll celebrate here in Jesus' name.